You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Good morning, Roots. It's awesome to see you guys. Um, a few of you have already asked, as soon as you saw me, where's Holly and the kids? And they actually came on this trip, but Eden woke up with a high fever. So they are currently at the Bud's house, relaxing. So we'll have to wait till next time. On a brisk fall night, not far from here at, at Chapman University, when I was 19 years old, my life drastically changed. It was just another baseball game, just another swing of the bat for that matter. But this time I heard a crack in my wrist and the pain was overwhelming. After seeing a few doctors, I was told that I was going to have to sit out the entire season, get surgery, remove a bone and enter the long road to recovery. All the universities and pro scouts I was talking to no longer had any interest in me. To them, I was good for one thing, and that one thing was now gone. I couldn't hold a baseball bat. For the first time in my life, I didn't know who I was. I mean, what happens if I don't come back from this injury? My entire identity is wrapped up in the game of baseball. Who am I now? As I attempted to figure out a plan B for my life, over the next month, I read some self-help books and medicated my pain by partying. But I was still depressed, without direction or identity, so I decided, why don't I check out church? Kanye West had a popular song during that time called Jesus Walks. Hey, this works for some people, I thought. Maybe it'll work for me. So I went to church. It was a mega church in Orange County. And it was there where I heard the gospel for the first time. Encountered Jesus and everything changed. So as my journey began and I started growing as a Christian, I was also beginning to learn theology. The church I belonged to and got saved out was part of a larger movement, the Word of Faith movement. The same theological roots, also known as the prosperity gospel. I was taught that yes, Jesus did die for my sins. But what was just as emphasized was all that came with being God's children. And I'm not talking about justification, adoption, and union with Christ. I'm talking about health, wealth, and happiness. They are yours in Christ. Just receive it by faith. I'd hear Rick name it your best life and claim it by the blood of Christ and it is yours. The reason this theology is so attractive is because it takes our culture's understanding of the good life, gives it a little Christian spin and now in the name of Jesus, go get all your heart's desires. Well, over the next few years, I saw many people who seemed to love Jesus 
fall away from him. And quite frankly, looking back, I don't blame them. That theology can't handle adversity, trials, a season of suffering, a loss of job, barrenness, betrayal, death. Because if you've been naming and claiming prosperity, healing, or wealth, all in the name of Jesus, and nothing happens, or the situation even gets worse, there's two options. You didn't have enough faith, or God isn't real. Now in God's sovereign providence, right before I entered into a season of suffering myself, my word of faith, genie in a bottle theology, got shattered and a big God theology was built in its place. A theology where God is supreme over all things, not me and my magical faith. A theology that can not only handle suffering, but gives you a perspective on what God is up to in your suffering. We live in a culture obsessed with comfort, right? We, we will go to extreme measures to make sure trials stay far, far away. Many people struggle even with constant anxiety about future trials. Trials that aren't even their current reality. We live in a culture where our kids are coddled. And we think keeping them from failure and difficulty is somehow helping them. And if we're honest with ourselves, though our formal theology may be far from the prosperity gospel, what about our lives? Are we not often functionally living out the prosperity gospel? Comfort, cozy, consumers? I know these are some of my idols. In our passage this morning, James is writing to a group of people who are exiles. They've been scattered because of Christian persecution outside of Jerusalem. Trials, suffering, tribulation, this is the air they breathe. And James is going to tell them and us not to run from trials, but rather see what God is doing in the midst of your trials. That some of God's best work in our lives come through seasons of hardship. So if you would, please open up your Bibles back to the book of James. Is this headset good? I feel like I'm going in and out. Are we good? Yeah, cool. Look with me at verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, or better translation, brothers and sisters. This is his plea to the people of God. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Right away, I love how he doesn't pigeonhole a specific trial. Right? James is pretty broad when you meet trials of various kinds. Post-fall, we know life is full of trials. Some are tougher than others, but this passage on suffering is for all trials. Is there a trial that you're going through right now? James says, count it joy. Count it joy. 
Now, some hear these words and they think that the Christian life is full of smiles. Is James saying, let's be chipper, happy, filled with joyful emotions when life sucks? Is that really what he's commanding us? When we find ourselves in a dark season, be joyful. You may be thinking James has no grasp on reality. James doesn't know what I'm going through. He doesn't know how hard my marriage is, how crazy my kids make me, how lonely I am. He doesn't know what it's like being sick or someone you love sick as the doctor has no answers. He doesn't know depression like I experience it. James has no clue what it's like being betrayed by your friends or family. Some people literally think because of this verse, Christians should always feel happy. But here's the thing. James isn't telling you to feel a certain way. James is telling you to think a certain way. Pastor theologian Sam Albury says, notice James says, count it, consider it. He's not telling us so much how to feel as how to think. He is not saying, pretend this is fun. No, James is telling us to think about our trials in a certain way. There is a point of view we need to adopt, a particular way to consider what is going on. And what is going on in our suffering. Look at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The only way to gain muscle in the gym is by tearing muscle in the gym or on the paddleboard. I don't know about you, Mitch, but my calves are pretty sore this morning. Well, James is saying, count it joy when you are facing hard situations because in this, your faith is being tested. And it's doing something. It's producing steadfastness. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If someone were to ask me, Rick, what do you most long for? I don't think my answer would be suffering. (laughs) Bring on the pain. Like one of my best friends in high school who became a recon marine soldier and came back from boot camp with a tattoo across his collarbone. Suffer in silence as he eagerly awaited deployment to Iraq. I praise God for guys like my friend, but I'm not wired like that. And I don't think this passage is telling us to go looking for suffering. To find the greatest trial imaginable all to the glory of God. But if someone does ask me, Rick, what do you most long for? I think I would say, I think the Bible would say conformity to Christ. I want to look more like Jesus. If you're a follower of King Jesus this morning, isn't this what you want as well? Well, trials, friends. Trials do just that. We don't look for them, but we consider it joy when they come. 
because they will grow us up to look like our Lord. A faith that is complete, whole, mature, not lacking anything. This is the kind of faith we need and it comes through trials. And James is not saying that suffering is good in and of itself, but rather what God can accomplish through suffering is glorious. So when it does come, don't waste it. He uses trials to bring about his work of transformation in the lives of his people. So consider it joy. But as trials bring our faith to maturity, they can also give us more questions than answers. Lord, what should I do? Lord, give me direction as I don't know up from down in this storm I find myself in. Lord, give me wisdom. And that's where James goes next. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Now this is not just a random verse about wisdom. This is wisdom needed during trials. And James is going to motivate these Christians and us to pursue wisdom during trials by reminding us of some good theology. Three things about God. First, God gives generously, he says. Unlike Chipotle, where I need to ask for extra, extra, and please, bro, just a little bit more chicken, not God. God gives generously. When we ask for wisdom, he gives it. Second, he gives to all who ask. This is not for the VIP Christian. This is for everybody. And third, he gives without reproach, without finding fault. He's not shaking his head like, come on, kid. Don't ask me for wisdom. You got yourself into this mess. Get yourself out of it. No, he's a loving father. And when his children ask for wisdom in the midst of a storm, he gives us wisdom. He loves his children. But there are conditions. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The prosperity gospel folk love this verse. But they will tell you outside of any context that James is speaking about. Of course, they won't speak on suffering, which is the context to this verse. They will just say, look at what James says. Ask in faith. Do not doubt. Name it and claim it by faith. And if what you've asked for does not come to pass, well, you're probably a double-minded man. You most likely let your faith doubt. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. That's what James says. You need more faith. Or maybe you need to give more. Many of us aren't tempted to think like that, but we can still easily misunderstand this verse. We can believe James is saying that there is no place for doubting in the Christian life. 
when we ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials, 100% confidence or nothing. Unfortunately for us, that's not what he's saying either. Or else would any of us be able to receive wisdom? James is actually speaking about somebody with split loyalties. The phrase double-minded man, literally double-souled, is a phrase we don't find anywhere in literature until James. Most people think he coined it himself. Double-souled is someone with one foot in the kingdom of God, the other in the world. Like when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. That's what James is talking about. This has nothing to do with having doubt. I hope that in our doubt we pray, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But here this has everything to do with your allegiance. Again, Sam Albury says, the doubter is someone who wants to hedge their bets two ways. They'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if anyone has anything better to offer. They'll check out what the Bible says, but they'll also check out what the wisdom of the world says. They don't believe God's ways will necessarily and always be the best ways. They are double-minded, trying to live in more than one direction at once. They think they can switch between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom at will and get the best of both. Miriam Kamel, New Testament scholar at Regent College, she says this, this description hits close to home in an age of nominal Christians who attend church from time to time, perhaps even regularly, but who refuse to let God interfere with their daily lives and goals. This is the double-souled person. The double-minded man split in their loyalties. And I don't know about you guys, but this is convicting, right? In 2022, in such a polemic world we live in, where we are told to give our allegiance to this or that. And if it's true that, that, our, that in our flesh we are idol-producing factories, oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when our allegiance is split, when we submit to your reign as king when it's convenient, when we compartmentalize our lives, not realizing that you reign over all. Renew in our hearts, O oh Lord, loyalty to Christ over everything. Jesus, James, says this person is the double minded man. That he's like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Oh, church, on Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's keep working through this passage. James is not finished with those suffering. Though at first glance in this next section, James seems to get distracted, move off topic with trials and gives an excursus on wealth. That couldn't be farther from the truth. James as a pastor knows people all too well. 
and how often our economic situation actually plays a role in how we cope with suffering. James knows that these Christians outside of Jerusalem, many whom were former members of his church, and likewise us, are more affected by our financial situations or lack thereof than we'd like to admit. He has a word for two different groups of people in the church, the haves and the have-nots when dealing with trials. And he actually has the same advice for both groups. Take pride in your position. Boast in the gospel. So let's start with the have-nots. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Exaltation, or in the NIV, high position. This is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the heavenly realm, where Christ has ascended. James is saying, in the midst of your trials, don't look at yourself how the world might look at you. Poor, weak, outcast of society. No, 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 you are rich, brothers and sisters. You are rich. Look at your high position in Christ. Because of the gospel, right now, you have all you need. Get your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Because through faith, you have been united with him by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Right now, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Spend some time taking in the view from up there. Because of the gospel, all the benefits of Christ are yours. Think on this. Stop thinking about the little Bitcoin you may have as you hope for a miracle. Stop obsessing over your social media feeds and how awesome everyone else's life seems. Get your eyes on your high position. Boast in the gospel. And what does James have to say to the haves? Those in the church who are doing quite well for themselves financially? Take pride in your position. Boast in the gospel. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Look at verse 10. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In a world where we are constantly told the good life is to accumulate more and more stuff. Bigger piles of wealth. Shinier toys in the garage bigger and nicer houses. James brings the rich some rather humbling news. In the midst of trials where we can easily be tempted to look for security and comfort in our bank accounts, 
our emergency funds, our 401ks, and how easy it can be to numb the pain by buying the latest and greatest car or phone or coping your weary soul by remodeling your kitchen or grabbing the bottle. James says, no. In your trial, boast in your humiliation. The gospel is extremely humbling news for the rich that apart from Christ, your spiritual bank account is past due. That no amount of money can get you right standing with God. James wants the rich, he wants many of us to boast in the fact that as we come to the foot of the cross, we bring nothing with us but our sin. Nothing brings humility and gratitude like the cross. And this is what the rich need during trials. There are some things money can buy. Right standing with God is not one. We literally take nothing with us from this life. We're like a flower of the grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. One commentator says, both types of Christians, the rich and the poor, must look at their lives from a heavenly, not an earthly perspective. And as we boast in the gospel, like one author says, we can look forward with greater anticipation to the day when all trials will have come to an end. And the only thing weighing us down will be the crown of life which God will place on the heads of all who treasure him. Look at verse 12. This is James's beatitude. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I know many think this might actually be a physical crown. I kind of hope so. I mean, I love hats, wearing them, collecting them, and I've never had a crown, but that would be pretty cool. I saw the Queen of England once. But this phrase literally translates the reward which is life. For those who remain steadfast under trial, for those who have stood the test, for those who love God, we have an award ceremony worth waiting for. Our reward, which is life, eternal life with Jesus, our Lord. But as good as that's going to be, James is a realist. He knows that standing the test of faith is not easy. With every trial comes a host of temptations. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we find ourselves in the midst of trials, don't our temptations just go to the next level? 
James knows this, and he wants us to know that these temptations are not God-given. Some say God will never give you more than you can handle. Don't tell that to the author of this book, James, whose life ended when he was beaten with a stick after he was thrown off the Temple Mount. Pretty sure that was more than he could handle. Unless what they mean is God will never give you more temptation than you can handle. Which I guess is true because James is saying God doesn't give the temptation in the first place. How easy is it for us to blame others? This goes back to the garden, right? God, the woman you gave me, she did it. We say Satan's attacking me lately. Or porn's trying to trip me up again. Or God is really tempting me in this season. No. Don't blame God or even the temptations themselves like the problem is outside of you. James says, look inside yourself. Each person is tempted by their own desire. I love Martin Luther's definition of sin. Humans turned in upon themselves. That's what is happening when we are tempted. And if we don't kill that desire early, it gives birth to sin. And when this thing grows, it eventually brings forth death. James is saying, count it joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because it's maturing you. But with our trials come temptation. So James is also saying, consider this a warning, brothers and sisters. Kill sin or it will kill you. Instead of blaming God for what he does not give, temptations, James is going to end our passage this morning by praising God for what he does give. Look down with me at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Not only do we have the tendency to forget what we are capable of this side of eternity, but we're also prone to forget who God is and what his character is like. He is our gracious heavenly father who gives us, his children, good gifts. James reminds us that from the enjoyment of a sunset, to the air we breathe, the health in our bodies, to the laughter of our kids, good wine and food, to relationships and art and everything in between. Every good gift is from God. We ought to just stop and take more praise breaks throughout the day, right? But then there's a gift from God on a whole nother level. Read verse 18 with me. Of this, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all his creatures. James is most likely the first New Testament letter penned. James isn't speaking about other New Testament texts here because there are none. He's not speaking about the Old Testament. 
the word of truth is James' shorthand for the gospel. And of God's own will, he brought us forth, his new creation people, by the word of truth, by the gospel. And what is the gospel? The greatest news ever. That the long-awaited Messiah, the descendant of David, he has come. And through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he takes away the sin of the world and establishes his kingdom. Like I said, the greatest news ever. But the gospel, this good news of King Jesus, demands a response. Repentance and faith. Returning from your sin and trusting in Jesus as our only hope in life and death. If you don't know Jesus this morning as Lord if someone or something else has your allegiance, hand over the reins of your life and place your faith in Christ. And it is only because of the gospel, by faith alone, that we become new creations in Christ. Jesus is the first fruit as he rose from the dead. And those whom James is writing to, those with new hearts, like he says here, are the first fruits of all of Jesus' creation. And so we, likewise, through faith, are grafted into this family tree. Amen? So like I asked earlier, do you find yourself in a trial this morning? Jesus says, don't be surprised. In this world, you will have tribulation. The question is, do you know what God can or is already doing through your trial? Maybe you're far enough in this season of suffering. You've already seen him work. Your life might be filled with tears and sorrow, but you're considering it joy. He's maturing you. Beloved, stay on course. Do not lose heart. Blessed is they who remain steadfast under trial. Maybe you found yourself in a new trial that you did not see coming. You just need wisdom at this point. My dear brothers and sisters, ask God for wisdom. He will give it. Or maybe you're doing everything possible to keep yourself from trials. Comfort, cozy, consuming, this is the aim of your life. Your theology on paper is legit, but the prosperity gospel is where you live. Let us not be double-souled, serving two masters. Instead, let us double down on our allegiance to King Jesus. God doesn't exist to make you the best version of yourself on your terms. But God does use trials to complete the work he has started in you. So whether you're in a trial 
or you just know they will be coming, take heart, Jesus says. I've overcome the world. And as I close, take note, your ability to count it joy in the midst of suffering, your progress of steadfastness having its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, not lacking anything, and your strength to stand the test and receive the reward, which is life, is not dependent on how strong your faith is, but rather on the object of your faith. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson says, My security as a Christian does not reside in the strength of my faith, but in the indestructibility of my Savior. We must get our eyes on Jesus, church. He is our ultimate example in trials. When tempted, Jesus never gave in. When his friends betrayed him and he was headed to Calvary, the book of Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him. With a smile on his face? Heck no. He was sweating drops of blood, asking God to take this from him. Agonizing cries on the cross like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was able to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew what God was doing in his trial. That's why he could consider it joy. God the Father was using the cross and the sacrifice of the Son of God incarnate to save sinners like me and you. So as you continue to endure the trial you find yourself in, you don't need to feel a certain way. James wants you to think a certain way. Consider it joy. Like we see in the cross, God turns ashes into beauty.